Let us pray. Lord God, help us to recognize the gifts that you have placed within us and nurture them well. Amen. Please be seated. My mother, Pat, was born in 1929, a few months before the stock market crashed. So her formative years were during the Great Depression. She had a sister, Marilyn, who was two years younger. They were cute and precocious little girls, whom an uncle nicknamed Pat and Pete which stuck with my Aunt Pete her entire life. Now, my Aunt Pete could sing, and she was known for her ability to tap dance while wearing roller skates. And my mother could recite. Her specialty was Casey at the Bat, and the poems of James Whitcomb Riley, complete with Hoosier dialect. Now, from the time my mother was six until she was 16. She and her sister were the Keys girls, local talent in Lafayette, Indiana. Their mother took them to the Purdue University radio station to perform. They were entertainment at birthday parties and Knights of Columbus events and for ladies auxiliaries. Now this was the era of the Little Rascals and Shirley Temple of child stars on the big screen. But Pat and Pete were not the big time. They were the little time, the local time. Growing up in a family struggling with the economic collapse of the 1930s, my grandfather reupholstered furniture. My grandmother was a bookkeeper at an auto garage. Their children's performances brought in little in the way of extra money, just enough perhaps to pay for two haircuts, an accompanist, a ride to the gig, and costumes that my grandparents would design and make for them. Why would my grandmother and grandfather go to so much trouble in that hard scrabble time of the Depression to book all these gigs? for their daughters. They did not have their eyes on Hollywood or careers in theater. They weren't pushing them up and out. They were just pushing them all around their college town. The girls did not become adult performers. Although my aunt, with her girl-next-door good looks, did manage to enter and win Miss Lafayette one year. I don't think my grandparents would have put it this way but I see Pat and Pete's 10 years as the local talent to be an act of resistance in those uncertain and troubling years. Tap dancing on roller skates and reciting the 13 stanzas of Casey at the Bat brought a little joy to Mudville. It helped get people through to the other side. Now, these old stories that my mom tells surfaced for me as I wrestled with today's gospel. Now, there's an easy read to the parable of the talents, of course. In folk singer Cy Khan's words, it's not just what you're given, it's what you do with what you got. And that's fair enough. The 
kingdom of God depends on everyone using their God-given gifts until Jesus returns to sort things out. Even the ones with the least ability, they're important too. But this time around, I find, found myself fe feeling rather sorry for the poor sap who just got one talent to work with. Now granted, that is the equivalent of 6,000 denarii, which is not chump change. One denarii was a day's wage for most. So 6,000 denarii. However, Jesus indicates that each slave is given responsibility according to his ability. And this guy apparently had the least of it. That's where I get a little nervous. I feel that this parable can put us in dangerous territory if the listeners put a lot of stock in abilities and proportional rewards for those who might never want to find themselves among the least able or the disabled. Of course, but what would you expect of people like that ungrateful servant, lazy, wicked, and who among the abundantly blessed wouldn't secretly love the moral of the story? For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have, will be taken away. I'm sorry, that's the last thing we need to hear right now in 2020. So Jesus better have a good reason to set it up this way. <laughs> the 25th chapter of Matthew has lots to say to a community that is waiting for Jesus to come back and finish what he started. So we had the story of the wise and foolish virgins a few weeks ago called to be ready for the bridegroom's return and the sorting of the sheep and the goats when the Son of Man returns and this story, which is also about a return and a sorting and a judgment. Now, I can't help noticing that elsewhere in the gospel, when Jesus talks about the least ones, he sets them up as examples of those who are essential to the kingdom of God. Whatever you did to the least ones, you did to me. Let the children come to me, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Blessed are those who mourn, are poor, are meek. You get the picture. But here, Jesus is tossing the least able one out into the night to gnash his teeth because he didn't invest what he was given. Why does Jesus single his behavior out for particular attention and scorn? Why is he so exasperated with this kind of person? I think it's because the little ones, the least able, have always been utterly essential to God's work in crafting the kingdom. They are not afterthoughts. They are not also important, as in don't forget the little ones, they're important too. They make up the bulk of the kingdom. In fact, they make up the bulk of humanity in a world where today 70% of the world's population lives on $10 a day. They are the connective tissue of the body of Christ. And what happens when ones such as these are made to feel that their gifts and their lives don't matter? 
that they're not important to God or anyone else if you start comparing things to those who have more. Well, they can begin to shut down and withdraw those gifts and cell by cell, the body of Christ begins to die. And Jesus can't have that. It seems to me that Jesus was most offended by the fact that the least able servant in the parable saw himself and his significant gift as insignificant. And as a result, the servant lost touch with what he signified. And what do the least ones signify in the story of God's life with humanity? They signify the place where Christ the King incarnates. The network of relationships that invites others to lay down their pride and their perfectionism, they signify the reversal that Jesus was working on the superlative standards of the day, then and now. They remind us of Jesus' invitation to join him among and as the ones who rely entirely on the grace of God rather than as the gifted who have all they need to strike out on their own. Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. According to the parable, in the eyes of the master, all of these slaves had been handed something small, though it was really quite large by human standards. Perhaps Jesus wanted to make a lesson of the one who considered himself and his gifts insignificant because we all can find ourselves in that precarious place. I mean, look at where our popular culture directs our attention time and again. To the most beautiful, the richest, the most powerful, the best educated, the most accomplished, the YouTuber with the most followers, and if we live by those standards, none of us come out looking very good or very capable, though we may spend a lot of money and energy to appear that way or to strive to get there. What gifts do we bury under the deep-seated fear that compared to everybody else, we're really just frauds? But not so in God's kingdom. Jesus won't have it. The one with the least ability, given the smallest piece to steward, is actually the one with the most important task. To participate in the great reversal of God. To help cast down the mighty from their thrones. And for me, that puts the Beatitudes in a new light. As well as the parable of the mustard seed and the little children coming to Jesus. Essential workers all. Don't you dare set those gifts aside. And to me, that looks a little like those girls during the Depression, singing and dancing and reciting wherever they were sent to go or their parents made them go. Not the big time, but big enough for that time because their parents thought enough of them to put those simple talents to work in their neighborhood to help get through a horribly difficult decade. 
in the vast network of relationships where God incarnates in our life, all our gifts are small. And yet every point of gift sharing is essential and every connection is significant because they signify the presence of God among us and a power that courses through and animates us all. Now, perhaps this is most obvious to little children and mystics who tend to not draw comparisons about the size of the divine spark they carry within. I'm reminded of the 17th century Hasidic rabbi Zusha of Hanapol, who was known for his sincerity and his religious fervor, as well as his knowledge of Torah. On his deathbed, his students found him weeping at the prospect of facing judgment in heaven. They tried to reassure him that he had been nearly as wise as Moses and as kind as Abraham. But Reb Zusha countered, when I get to heaven, I will not be asked, why weren't you more like Moses? Why weren't you more like Abraham? When I get to heaven, I will be asked, Zusha, why weren't you more like Zusha? May we all prepare for that question by nurturing to the full the precious little that God has entrusted in our care. Amen.